Essentialism is not about how to get more things done. It's about how to get the right things done. It doesn't mean just doing less for the sake of less either. It is about making the wisest possible investment of your time and energy in order to operate at our highest point of contribution by doing only what is essential. This is a statement made by Greg McEwen in his New York Times best-selling book, Essentialism. But what does essentialism look like in our efforts to live the gospel of Jesus Christ? Well, for starters, Greg says Jesus Christ was a master of discerning the priority in every situation. Originally from London, England, Greg McEwen has taught the principles of essentialism to millions of people around the world. He has instructed companies about these principles, including Adobe, Apple, Airbnb, Google, Facebook, and Twitter. McEwen graduated with his MBA from Stanford University. He and his wife, Anna, are the parents of four children and currently reside in the Los Angeles, California area. This is All In, an LDS Living podcast where we ask the question, what does it really mean to be all in the gospel of Jesus Christ? I'm your host, Morgan Jones, and I'm honored to have Greg McEwen on the line with me today. Greg, thanks so much for joining me. Oh, it's my pleasure to be with you, Morgan. Thank you. Well, we previously did a story together, Greg, where I was able to interview you, and that interview, I think, lasted close to two hours. So today, in an effort to kind of cut to the chase, I'm just going to kind of dive right in, if that's okay with you. It's marvelous. (laughs) Well, let's maybe start with this. You had an experience in your life that you said greatly shaped it from there on out. You said that this started at the Spanish temple dedication and kind of carried into a trip to Utah that you took three weeks later, and this was shortly after your mission. Do you mind sharing that experience? The the Spanish temple dedication was an extraordinary moment for me. I, through a series of, um, you know, in inverted commas, coincidences, was able to be there. And then the last moment was invited to actually be in the celestial room for what was the first dedicatory session. And I'm sitting there with friends, with family, uh, you know, a family of friends rather from the area. And at first I was a bit like uh, a, um, a spiritual tourist about the moment. President Hinckley's there, uh, Elder Holland's there, his wife's there. You know, there's just these, to me, these extraordinary people. And, and I'm like, why, why did I get to be here? And then, you know, sometimes the spirit tells you things and sometimes the spirit tells you off. <laughs> and <laughs> as it turns out, this was more like one of those. Um, and, and the spirit took the same question I'd asked, but with a different tone and said, well, why do you, why do you get to be here? And, and I look around and I suddenly realize really everybody there is there because they have sacrificed their lives for something like the last 30 years. So these are the leaders from Portugal, from Spain, uh, that had uh, that had literally were the first members of the church in the in the area and uh, and had built what had led up to now this temple. And and I felt of course humbled by that uh, reflection and then in that reflection in that moment really was faced with a question which was um, you know, are you willing to hold your whole life in your hands and give it to me? That's what these people have done. That's why they're here. <laughs> they already did it. And you're here now. And, um, and I remember feeling terrified about that question. Not, not because, uh, I expected some, crazy or unexpected thing to happen if I answered yes, but because I thought I would just be told to go back and do what I was already doing, you know, yes, I'll do it. And that wasn't, I already had within me a desire for something different, a a hope of something, a a sort of a sense of mission. But I, I did say yes. And that was the moment. This was a real decision point. 
And the decision comes from the Latin to cut or to kill. And this turned out to be one of those moments, the cutting off or the killing of an old life and the birth of a new life. And really everything that's happened since then, and that's been, you know, um, just I think coming up on 20 years uh, in, in, I think in a couple of months here, marks 20 years since that moment. And and the, the, the difference, the dividing line between all that's happened and uh, and, and, and what's happening before is so stark that that really was, uh, to use President Inkley's term for a, a different but similar event in his own life, uh, a day of decision for me. Yeah. Well, I love that story because I think that it's so interesting. I think we've all felt those feelings of like you talked about being almost afraid that you would be told to go back to what you had been doing, but then also feeling this longing to have a sense of mission. And I think that's something that a lot of us experience at certain points in our lives in those decision moments that kind of change the course from from there on. And I kind of want to talk about how that shaped you for what you're doing now. So you have that experience. And then I believe, was it like three weeks later that you came on this trip to Utah? Yes, that's right. I was, um, I was uh, visiting with, as I remember, with Jake White, who was uh, one of my missionary companions. And I was with him in Utah and, uh, and went to see uh, Jerry Lund, uh, Gerald Lund. And, um, um, and when I was visiting with him in the church, uh, offices, he, he just, I, I had this idea and I was, I really wanted to, to teach, to write. This is what was in my mind. And I had this idea for a, some this sort of, um, curriculum, uh, for returning missionaries. That's what, that's what the idea was. And he said, well, it's very timely that you're here. I actually have been working, you know, over the years on just such a curriculum and, uh, and, and he shared that with me and he said, well, look, if you do decide to stay in America, you should come and help on this consultation committee and just kind of give your thoughts and share these ideas. And, uh, and, and as it turns out, I, I never did that. And I, I don't really remember why I just, just that never happened. But that moment had a really curious force about it. I remember going downstairs and, um, and everyone was leaving for the day. It was sort of dusk and, um, and I, I, I was writing down on a piece of paper, you know, well, what if you what if you did decide to stay in America? He'd said it as if it was just one of my options, you know, that his assumption was that this could be done. And up to that point, I don't think it had been a real option. You know, I suppose mentally it might have been, but emotionally it wasn't. And so as I'm sitting there. They say almost everybody's gone for the day and I'm just writing and I don't know, 20 minutes or so I'm writing these ideas and I look at the piece of paper and I notice not what I've written down, but what I haven't written down, which is that um, law school is not on my list. So if I did decide to stay in America, if I did do whatever I would, you know, what, what was really inside me, it wouldn't be law school, which was inconvenient because I was still at the time at <laughs> law school in England. Uh, and the one thing you were doing was not on the list. Yeah, that's right. That's <laughs> right. The big thing I was doing was not on the list. That's right. And it wasn't that that was a shocking moment because I wasn't really enjoying it very much. But given the physical distance of being a different continent, uh, the the conversation I just had, which just assumed that this was a real choice. I remember just uh, seeing it with new eyes. And it was almost like at that point that the, the genie was out of the bottle and there was no putting the genie back in. The, even though it took a little, you know, it took a few weeks before that was, you know, there were plans in place and, and I had officially changed what I was doing. Uh, I, I just never went back before that moment, I, I never said, OK, well, I'm just going to go back. I think I just go back and spend a few more weeks law school and just see. I just the, the optimism just grew and grew. The hope of what could follow grew and grew. And um, and so I never went back to law school. I mean, I called my parents from the United States. And uh, I remember my mother answers. Uh, fortunately, she listened for a while and she said, 
I think you better talk to dad. <laughs> She's like, I'm going to turn this over. <laughs> so he comes on the phone uh, and he listens too, which isn't, which isn't entirely like him. And he listens for a while. And then because all Englishmen quote Shakespeare, you know, <laughs> over, over tea and crumpets for breakfast in the morning, uh, he pulls a line uh, straight out of Hamlet. He became quite Churchillian about all of it, actually. Son, you know what we've always told you. You know, and I knew what he'd always told me, which was go to law school. <laughs> but that's not what he seemed to remember. Uh, he said, well, we've always told you, son, that thine own self be true. <laughs> and, and I don't remember him ever quoting that line from Hamlet to me ever or in my whole life uh, or since. But, but in that moment, I, I'm sure that he was being led in what he said. And, and that, that was right. There was another line, actually, he followed up with, so to thine own self be true. And then he quoted him from, from primary hymn, you know, do what is right, choose what is right, let the consequence follow. And that was very empowering. It supported that I wasn't crazy about this. These ideas weren't just, um, you know, weren't just youthful fancies, for example. And and I felt that it was, you know, for me, in a, in a very small way, really important. You know, in my life, it was essential. And so, yeah. uh, and, and so quit law school and and pursued this this different totally different journey uh and uh, to teach to write to, to 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 get to read and study all the time and 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 try to find ideas that have the power of relevancy for people and that can uh, that can make a difference uh you know to to in my own small way to 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 share some light uh in a world that can be filtered who knows where sometimes it, and uh, and and the, the opportunities came you know thick and fast and 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 were persistent after that uh, it has been yeah it has been quite the adventure well i think that you do a great job of that greg and i think the interesting thing about the story that you just told is you have that experience with your father where he says do what is right let the consequence follow and essentially, that is what you have spent your life teaching people is this the importance of making choices. And so I kind of want to go ahead and just get right into this concept of essentialism. Can you explain for those listening that maybe aren't familiar with your book or the things that you teach, what is essentialism? Uh, essentialism is disciplined, continual, uh, systematic approach to figuring out what is essential, eliminating everything that's not, and then building a system in your life to make it as effortless as possible to do what you've just identified as being essential. So it's just those three steps. It's to explore what is essential. You have to create space to be able to do that, uh, to then have the courage of those convictions and actually eliminate what is uh, what is less important or even totally non-essential out of your life so that then you have the the resources, the space, the energy to be able to actually build a new system, a new life with new routines, new habits to be able to uh, to, to really actually follow through, uh, you know, hopefully as effortlessly as possible on the things that really matter most. Yeah. And you had an experience that kind of shaped this concept of essentialism in your own life and it has kind of served as the inspiration for that when your wife was having your child. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. I I mean this was um this I was I was already observing a phenomenon in professional environments in organizational levels where where organizations would uh, would often start off with a clear idea of what they were doing. But that as success came to them, they would start to be pulled in so many different directions that they started violating more important things for less important things. And so they fell into what Jim Collins has called the undisciplined pursuit of more. And if you do that, what happens at the organizational level is that you actually start to plateau in your progress or fail altogether. 
And so I was observing that there, a success paradox. And while I'm observing this, I have this little experience that, that in hindsight was really important one, which is that an email from a colleague at the time said, look, you know, Friday between one and two would be a very bad time for your wife to have a baby uh, because I, I need you to be at this client meeting. And, and you know, and I, because naturally you can schedule your <laughs> child's birth. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> you know, and, and, and I'm sure they were joking. You know, I, I um, uh, as, but, but as we go Thursday night, in the middle of the night, we're in the hospital. Our daughter's born. Uh, everybody's well enough off. Um, and uh, Friday morning, I mean, everyone is as well off as one is after you've gone through the valley of the shadow of death the night before. <laughs> <laughs> but that morning, I am feeling torn. I do not feel empowered to simply say, this is what's essential, this is what is not. I feel torn. I want to do both. I want to keep everybody happy. I want to, you know, I want both, which is really the, the classic non-essentialist uh, dilemma. Is Right. We want not, it all. Well, yes. And, and, and if we just simplify it to just, we want both. Whenever there's a trade-off, the non-essentialist wants both. I think it's quite a natural man instinct, actually. We want, you know, there's the cake and to eat it too. We want both. We think both is the way to happiness. We think both is, um, is, is, is the way to success. It, it, sometimes we even think that's what success is. But, um, you know, as I go to that meeting that day, uh, I find – well, of course, I didn't keep everybody happy. I'm, I'm, I'm barely really present in the meeting. I'm tired. I'm, I'm, I'm sort of disconnected. Uh, and, and of course, I haven't been there for, for, for something that's clearly more important. The, you know, my, my daughter, my uh, wife, and I violated something essential for something non-essential. And I learned the simplest of lessons, which is if you don't prioritize your life, uh, someone else will. And and so that did become a uh, clarifying moment again in hindsight, uh, and and I really I really realized that that it's not the only time I've done something. Maybe not as maybe I, hopefully not done that sort of thing very often. But 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 and I'm not the only person who has made the the, the basic error. It's actually pretty pretty universal mistake. And so people listening to this can ask themselves, look, have they ever felt like I was feeling stretched too thin at work or at home? Um, have they ever felt like I was feeling busy, but not necessarily productive? Have they ever felt that their day is being hijacked by other people's agenda that, 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 uh, that sort of takes them off course? And, and if the answer to any of those questions is yes, um, then, you know, what, what I write about in essentialism is, is intended to be a way out. You know, the way out is this, uh, the way of the essentialist. Which, you know, you go through those questions and I'm like, well, that should just about cover everyone. So um, I think this is an important thing for anyone listening and, Definitely for me, you know, I read this book a couple years ago before we did our first interview, and it's something that I've often thought about. And I've thought about some of the concepts that you taught and specifically how those, how we see those in the scriptures and um, within the church. And so I think that that's one reason I was like, oh, we've got to have Greg on this podcast, because I think the things that you teach in regard to how this applies to the gospel and our membership in the church is so, so valuable. One thing that was interesting to me was I I remember when I read the book the first time, and I thought, this reminds me so much of President Oak's talk, Good, Better, Best. And I asked you, I was like, did that influence writing the book? And you explained to me that you actually had seen these principles 
in the businesses that you were working with. And then that allowed you to kind of look at these things in the gospel through different eyes. So I guess my question for you, Greg, is would you say that your faith has influenced the topics in your research or that your research has influenced your personal faith? The answer is yes. They're they're interrelated. I don't even fully know how I'd separate them. Um, And, uh, but... But I will say this, when I was first writing essentialism and was looking for examples in scripture, um, partially as a, as a, a foundational sort of steadying mechanism to make sure that what you're teaching isn't just fresh, it must be fresh and true. You know, and so and so there's a few ways of doing that. You can do that through a variety of research techniques. You can do it through study. And you should also I felt I should also do it foundationally in scripture. Does this does this fit within what we what 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 is revealed truth? And at first, what I found was, okay, there are a few stories, uh, sort of classic simplification and prioritization stories in scripture. And I I felt like I was for bringing together, um, uh, you know, these uh, a piece here and a piece there, you know, Mary and Martha story, uh, you know, one is focused on the savior, the other focused too concerned with, with the, the hospitality of the, of the moment and, and, and all that had to be done. And, uh, but, but, um, but, but the first chose uh, that good part. Okay. There's a story that supports essentialism. And, and I, I felt like I was, reading in that way. But over time, I have understood something very differently, which is that every page and literally almost every story, if not every story, is an essentialist story. And, hmm. and it took me a while to, to see that. To, and, and what that revealed to me was how non-essentialist my own mind had become, how many non-essentialist ideas I had that got in the way of me reading the scriptures. You know, it's not just me. It's not just I read the scriptures directly. When we read the scriptures, we have, you know, the, there's, there's me, there's my uh, mindset, the way I see the world, uh, you know, to use uh, Paul's description, to, to see through a glass darkly. And, and I realized I, that, that part of my dark glass Part of what was interfering with my reading of the scriptures was a set of assumptions that turned out to be non-essentialist assumptions. And so it, it, it was interfering with the very which scriptures I emphasized, which ones I read and how I read those stories. And so for me, essentialism was a, a vehicle for cleansing some of that, for helping me to say, OK, let's let's just let's just try and take some of the world out of my mind, some of the world's expectations out of my mind and just seek what is actually written here. And, 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 and then what I find is you could almost literally at random turn to any page of scripture and, and say, okay, what's the story? And what you'll find is it's a story about someone who has been asked to make a divine trade-off between something essential and something non-essential. And sometimes those trade-offs are so um, they're, they're, they're really tough. And that's why they make it in Scripture and survive for thousands of years. You know, they, they, they're like exquisitely tough challenges because they're be, you know, people are being asked to make decisions between something essential, meaning very important, the most important, and something else really important. You know, so you think of Abraham uh, with his son Isaac. Uh, you know, this. This is, in a sense, the test of all tests because he has to be able to discern the priority of his life. He's not allowed to simply say, look, there's a lot of good things and there's a lot of really, really good things. He must be able to discern between, between you know, the Lord himself and his will for Abraham and the life of his own son uh, and previous promises that have been made to him. So this is... This is an essentialist challenge and maybe, you know, among the very toughest in scripture. Uh, and if he hadn't known what the priority was versus what a bunch of important things were, 
he couldn't have passed the test. He passes the test because he knows God first, everything else, including my own son, including the life of my own son, second. And getting that priority right is really the story of all scriptures. It's the same story again and again. Will we give up something less important for the thing, the thing that matters most, which is putting the Lord first and trusting that he's always right. And so that we're seeking constantly to have the discernment to be able to know the difference between the priority and even the other good things in our life. Yeah, absolutely. I think it is amazing in studying the scriptures how when you're looking for something, how much more you see it. Right now in my Book of Mormon reading, I've been trying to look for statements of identity, and I it's been amazing to look for those and see how frequently that shows up. And so I love that you, as you were looking for those examples of essentialism, found them on every page. And I think even with that, that's like a mindset shift in what we're looking for. And really this concept of essentialism and living an essentialist life is a mindset. And and one thing that I loved last time we talked, you kind of broke down for me how essentialism it can be kind of a celestial mindset. Do you mind explaining that to those listening? Well, right. So if you if you think about uh, the you know if you, you can think about the, the kingdoms of glory as as a future thing, um, you know, a, a, a judgment to come, or you can think about it as a as a lens through which to think about your life right now. And, and given that, that God exists in an eternal now, that is that the sense of past, present, and future that we, that we have been given to help make sense of this temporary experience on earth is not, does not appear to be, um, it, God's na- nature or existence at all. And right? everything right. is now, the internal now, that's how he exists. And so if we, if we take a, a, a page out of that, that truth, that reality, then we can start to use the kingdoms of glory as a as different lenses with which to think about what we're doing. Um, and, and sort of in a celestial area, if you can imagine that, that's that's really where a mind is is very self centered. Um, we're 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 consumed with the noise of the world. Uh, we 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 hunger after. Uh, you know, worldly um, rewards and worldly uh, prioritization, and so we may, we may still go to church, uh, but but we're really the core of us is still in this terrestrial mindset. At the terrestrial level, and this is where I think it gets a little trickier. At uh, the terrestrial level, uh, we're saying you know a lot of things are good. Uh, and, which is is a true statement, uh, but our discernment is only at the terrestrial level, and so we could easily, at that level, uh, sort of prioritize a whole series of things about the same level of importance. We we say, okay, well, I can go to church, or I can be with my family, or I can be with friends, or I can uh, go exercise, or you know, it's all all of these things are good. Uh, right, all good things. All, all good things, and there's certainly a degree of light. Um, and and in some ways, I think of everything I do professionally as sort of being in uh, the terrestrial place in some ways, because you, know, you, you you don't always have the opportunity, as we are today, to be able to see uh, to see the rich celestial uh, gospel uh, perspective and ramifications. Uh, so. So that's sort of a terrestrial mindset. The celestial mindset, we already used an example today with, with Abraham, but this is where we really are seeking those higher levels of discernment so that we can distinguish, you know, the, the essential from the good. Uh, of course, also from the trivial many, but, but that, that level of discernment is so critical. For example, in the Book of Mormon, the, there is this as we all know, this repeated 
promise. If you keep my commandments, you will prosper in the land. I mean, that is communicated constantly through, uh, through, through the book of Scripture. Um, but when you, when you read, for example, Nephi, how he uses that term and then what follows him having used that term, what you find is he's talking about personalized commandments. He's, he's, he's not talking about, he's not only talking about at that time, keeping the law of Moses and going through these ordinances and, and keeping the 10 commandments. He's, he's using it from this celestial point of view where he's receiving personalized commandments for him and really not for anyone else. Like I don't have to build a ship. I, you don't have to build a ship. Well, you might. I don't want to speak for you. You might have to build a ship, Morgan. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not building any ships anytime no, no, no soon. So anytime soon. But but nevertheless, that's the idea. Of, you know, at least one application of a celestial perspective is that we we have to be we have to seek to be in tune so that we get answers that are that clear. That I'll give you an example. Um, I was. Uh, I have to only be general because of course. Uh, you know, this is personal experience, but um, when I was serving as bishop, uh, I remember in the same week, I had um, I had two people come to me, well, two couple, and their situation was exactly the same. Very tough, really complex, personal situation. High, high stakes situation. I could hardly believe that, that this would happen within the same week. As they went through a very prayerful process of celestial discernment, they came to exactly opposite answers as to what to do. They, they both, yeah, each couple had the opposite answer. Same situation, very, very similar. I know nobody's exactly the same but very similar on the surface. And, yeah. and I didn't trust myself in that situation to my own logic or my own thoughts about what it would be. My goal was to, was to help them to go to the Lord and to have this high enough clarity to be able to discern the right commandment for them. And, and that to me is part of what it means to have the celestial perspective is that we can can discern this the right course for me. And in the final analysis, what's liberating about this is that I don't have to be so consumed with what other people's judgment of me is. There's one judge. There's not 10 judges, right? Well, there are 10 judges, but I don't have to worry about them all. You know, you and I don't have to worry about them all. We do probably a bit too much. What people think, what people say, how people are reacting. I mean, this is exhausting. But there is one judge, right? No man can serve two masters. And he's just saying two. You can't serve two. He's saying the celestial perspective means you've got to know who your master is, who your judge is, and and make sure that you're checking in with him. What's the right next step? What do I do next? And if we don't do that, we will immediately become cluttered by even very good ideas and expectations and intents and hopes. And, you know, we can get off track very quickly. Uh, you know, we can be in what might call it the law school of, you know, periods of our life. There's nothing bad about that. There's nothing bad. Lots of good about that. And of course, I'm not suggesting that other people at law school aren't supposed to be there. Uh, I just, there was, a, it was like a parallel path for me as a yeah. good path. And then there was the, you know, terrestrial path. And then there was a celestial path. And of course I've not spent every moment in that celestial path. I get off track all the time, but I'm constantly wanting to come back. That's the disciplined pursuit. In fact, a discipled pursuit, of what is essential. That's what I'm trying to do. Uh, is to is to keep coming back on into that perspective and that path. Yeah. Well, I love that you talked about um, the judge, and I couldn't help but think who is who is the judge, and then who is our lawyer? Speaking of law school, um, <laughs> in that situation, and that is Christ. And if we are trying to pursue a disciplined path 
in following him, we look at the way that he did things. And, um, and so I, I was thinking about how, how Christ is an, exa- is an example of essentialism. How do you think that we see that throughout the scriptures? I, I was thinking about how we're doing the come follow me. And if we want to follow him, right, we live the way that he lived. Uh, we've enjoyed so much uh, doing Come Follow Me and our family, and we've sort of gathered around uh, literally the, the hearth, uh, you know, the fireplace and the hearth that we've set there, and that's our favorite place to, to have these conversations. And uh, I remember in the first the first lesson that we had, uh, it was very spiritual experience, and, and, and I'm, I'm not not suggesting everyone has been or will be, but it was very powerful to have this this church experience at home, and and we really felt affirmed that of, of exactly this idea that 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 Jesus Christ was under one obligation, um, which was to do the will of His Father, right? It was to do His will at His time in His way, and. I mean, it got, it got him into all sorts of trouble, actually, in the end, because he wasn't willing to water that down or to do something else because it was popular or to, or to simply go with the, uh, the religious jargon and norms of the day. And, it, it, you know, saying this, I hope um, sensitively, you, you know, you don't, you don't crucify somebody who's no threat to your system, you know, Mm. and, and I mean, Jesus was much, much more than nice. Um, You know, sometimes, and and this isn't a knock on Mr. Rogers here either, but sometimes there's a sense of a Mr. Rogers figure. Just this, no, he's, he's, he's much more than just nice. Uh, He, he, he is, he is doing this extraordinary, exquisitely important, infinitely powerful uh, mission and nothing else. So, again, I don't want to go too far in, in sort of twisting something, but, but it is to me breathtaking to consider what Jesus Christ did not do in his earthly mission. I mean, there are so many places he didn't go. And, and so many people who were not healed in that moment, in that period, whether in his 33 years or his three, you know, the final ministry. I mean, there's so much not done. And, and of course, for some people, that was too much. It was it was a crisis of faith for them because they said, well, here we are. We've been expecting the, this Messiah is going to save us from all these things. And, 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 and it wasn't that he didn't have the power to do those things. He did have the power. He could have released the, the, the Jews from uh, under the Roman thumb, uh, but but it wasn't his father's will. So he he was obliged to do only what was essential, and and constantly so. And so in our lives, it, that's that's still an ideal. The the, the the my mission in life is to do, uh, you know, Jesus's will in His way in His time, and of course that's. That's uh, that's like, you know, that's full life, uh, full challenge to try and do that. Yeah. And as I've said, I get get it wrong lots of times. And in fact, I think probably I'm off track ninety percent of the time. Maybe maybe all of us are. We're off track. But but if we quickly repent, if we quickly forgive, if we quickly move forward, then we're again like Joseph Smith was called again to the work, and and our mission is restored to us, and we can still do. Uh, in our own life, in our own way, a marvelous work and a wonder uh, that, that he will work through us and do more with our lives than we uh, ever could alone. Uh, and, yeah. and, and it all really does come back to this idea of, of learning from him what his priority was and therefore in our life, in our covenant relationship with him, to, to seek the priority in our lives. I'll tell you a very concrete way that I've I've um, done this and been tutored in this, and that is is to is to is to is to see um, 
the sacrament on Sunday as as a Urim and Thummim for our week. That if we prepare for it right, in fact, there are there appear to be about two rules for how to use a Urim and Thummim. That they're, they're, they're not um, they're not very complicated. Um, but but all Urim Thummim seem to work by two rules. One is that we must exercise faith in Jesus Christ. Whatever faith we have, we must bring all of that faith to the table. And number two is that we must commit, promise to do whatever we're told as we use that Urim and Thummim. Like whatever light comes to us, we, we must act upon it. So it's not for curiosity's sake alone. It is intended for action. So we must come sort of pre-committed to whatever comes. And that if we do that, we will see things and that we will get that personal revelation that we will be able to then discern our essential mission in life. And to be able to do that each week means that, and, and in a very great number of instances, I have been surprised at, at what the priority for this week is. I'm surprised by it. Not every time surprised, but I would think maybe even as much as 80% of the time I'm surprised at the answer that hmm. comes. And it doesn't mean I, I do nothing else, but, but yeah, go ahead. Well, no, I was just going to say that's, that's super interesting. And I think, you know, as you talk about discerning that priority, I think that can be something that as members of the church, it almost adds this whole other element of what is essential. You know, I, I need to read my scriptures, but I also need to reach out to my ministering sister, and I also need to fulfill my calling. And so how do you see that, Greg? How do we better balance that as members of the church? Well, th- this is, you know, this is a very real challenge. And to pretend it's not is, is, is not helpful. It's not faithless to suggest that it's a bit confusing which thing is most important. Because almost any, any principle, you know, somebody can stand up and give a talk or or you could read a whole you know, volume of talk saying, you know, this thing is the thing. I mean, that's at least the impression one can receive. This is the most like important thing. There are one million things that seem to be the most important thing. Yes. And, and, and we've got to, you know, this is, we need that revelation discernment. Of course we do in the church as well as we do anywhere else. Of course we do. I mean, if it's not by, if it's not by revelation, then it's by, by some other Spirit, and if it's by some other spirit, then it's not of me, says the Lord. So, of course, we need it that way. Uh, we, you know, for, for my own sake, I, I've never been interested in thinking or serving in the church as if it's a, as if it's a social club, uh, if it, as if it's the Kiwanis Club or something. I mean, it's it's, <laughs> it's either the Lord's work or, or or it's just or it's really almost nothing. I mean, and and I absolutely believe and know it's the first. So. I mean, what I must do when I'm faced with these dilemmas is not just use my own best guessing. I, 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 I of course, of course, I can, I can take action and move forward. I don't have to uh, be become indecisive and uh, analysis you know, paralysis. But, but I can get on my knees. Um, I mean, I see my wife do this, uh, Anna do this, just constantly. Uh, she, she, you know, we we have four children. We have. A full life. Um, we, we serve in the church. We serve in the community. We have our children in a variety of activities. We uh, we actually we homeschool our three eldest children, which is um, always brings <laughs> opinions for everybody. But but, but you know, <laughs> and I'm not saying anyone should do the things we're doing. But it means that there are a lot of different possible activities trade-offs now. Exactly. And I yeah. see her now. It's not easy, but I see her grapple with them, and I see her going, "Okay, I'm I'm taking the time out, and I'm going to go." And what that means is she's going, you know, she's going to get on her knees, and she's going to just keep talking this through until she gets an answer. Okay, look, this is the thing. Focus on this, and, and then you can get to the next thing. But he is willing to give that revelation. President Nelson's talk. Uh, on, on revelation for the church and for the individuals is worth this repetitive reading because this is the very key. In a society suffocated with options, 
it is not surprising that within the church, as we bring all of that noise and ideas and options with us, that we too may be sometimes guilty of non-essentialism, of thinking that this particular, I don't know what, this this party that we're planning is is equal to importance uh, as, as, uh, as, as going on a temple trip. I don't know. I, I, I don't want to. I don't want to be the judge of this, but I know that the Lord did not create a world where everything was equally important. And so what we have to do as we as we enter the church, as we're members of the church, that's not enough. You can't just stop and say, well, now I'll just do everything. First of all, because you can't. There's still too many things. But we have to then. But what has to happen if we want to go further in our spiritual journey, we have to. And we want our contribution to increase that we might do really the Lord's work in our life. Our discernment level has to increase to match the number of options that we have. So when someone's feeling crazy, what do I do? A minister? Do I minister? Do I miss a sister? Miss a brother? Do I, what do I do for them? And, uh, you know, and you're pulled in all these different directions. You go back to the Lord. You make it in a sense, you admit that it's his problem. It's, it's, we're willing to do whichever. Now what, what's the right thing? And, and a prompting would come. And, and, and really, I think these changes, I think there's a, there's a, a, a consistent golden thread running through many, or if, if not all of the changes that have been made in the last year, these, uh, this absolutely palpably powerful revelatory year that we've had uh, in the church, that, that many of these things are, are actually stepping into the same basic principle, which is how do you simplify the process. Oh, we're not doing three hours, we're doing two hours. Uh, we're, we're, we're no longer having two quorums, we're going to have one elders quorum. Uh, and, and we could go through all you know, the, other major, the other major changes in a similar way. It's a simplification process in, in most instances. But it's also the change is not just less, it's less but better. So it means that it's, in a sense, it's less things, but now we must have greater discernment. No, you don't have to go and visit your family and bring them a message every month in the way we did before. No, that's no longer, you don't have to feel forced with that structure, but you are required to get high level of discernment so that you can know what the real need is. And so again, it's less, but better. Uh, yeah. I, I think that to, that to me is one way of thinking about uh, many of the shifts and, and changes that have been made. Well, I love that you brought up President Nelson. I feel like I say this every episode because every episode, this concept of revelation comes up and President Nelson comes up and how he is teaching us, it seems like, how to receive revelation from the Lord. And in this case, he's teaching us what is truly essential and I think that that makes it such an exciting time to be a member of the church and that we're learning so much more how to be like Christ and how to follow him. And that is such a powerful thing that I think I don't know that I really have thought about until the past like year or so is how am I following him in my life? Am I doing the things that he did? You know, you hear, I'm trying to be like Jesus. I've always sung it, but it feels like in the last little bit, that's become a lot more real. And it's only through that process of receiving personal revelation that we're able to do that. Greg, I could literally talk to you all day, but I just have one last question for you. And I think that this is going to be really interesting to hear your answer because it's essentially no pun intended, what we've been talking about this whole time. And that is, what does it mean to you to be all in the gospel of Jesus Christ? I've learned something new about this. Um, I suppose it's two things, but we've emphasized, especially at the beginning when you asked me about Spanish temple dedication, the first kind of all in. And that is, in that moment, that was an all in moment. I, I was giving my whole life to the Lord. And I I really believed in that moment uh, and still believe that what I was saying was, you don't have to take anything from me um, because it's already yours. And so that's what all in meant to me. And I still think that was important, critical moment. But there's a second kind of all in that I have 
been learning more about recently, researching more about, studying more about. And, and I see exhibited by President Nelson, I know I'm not saying it yet, but but I was just watching one of the, 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 the video bi- biographies of President Nelson. And one of the things I seem to think one of his children said was that they said when he was at work, he was completely at work. When he was at church, he was completely at church. When he was at home, he was completely at home with the family. And and at first it sounded like, oh, here's someone who has balanced their life well. Like That's what it sounded like at first. But then I thought, I don't think it's just about balance. It's that in this moment, he is doing what's right right now. You know, that's it's not that he's going, I'm in work mode. I mean, it's not just the shift. It's just in every now, he's where he is. He's giving everything in this moment. And I think that that's what all in looks like. So if you, if you really start to emphasize and focus on this moment, if you prioritize this moment above anything that's happened in the past and above anything that you're worried about in the future, and you realize it's always going to be about this moment, it changes It changes what it means to be all in. Because if you, if you use this lens, this lens of this present moment, this now, then every time the scriptures use the phrase always, which is not very many, um, I mean, there's multiple repetitions, but they're about only a few things worth going and studying it. Yeah. You find that there's only a few things the Lord is actually saying, please, in every moment, do this. In every moment. That's what he's saying when he says always. He's saying every now. In every now, do this. We can't have 50 things. You've all you've got to do in every moment. But there are a few things we're supposed to do in every moment. And that's what I think President Nelson's doing. He's, he's in this moment, humble before the Lord. In this moment, he is remembering Jesus Christ. You know, that's what we're saying in the sacrament. Every, you know, always remember him means in every now, remember him. And so in any moment when I start to feel grumpy, I go, okay, well, I'm not remembering that. I've got to remember him. I've got to be humble before him in this moment. It doesn't matter what I did on my mission. It doesn't matter what I did 10 years ago. It doesn't matter what calling I've served in the past, what things I've done. This is not relevant. This is not what the judgment is. It's in this moment. Uh, can, can I be all in with him? That's what it means now to me to be all in. That's amazing. I have never thought about it like that. And I feel like I'm going to need like a few days to chew on it. And I also need to go study where always is found in the scripture. So you've given me a good list of things to do, Greg, as always. And I so appreciate you being willing to take the time to talk to me. It really means the world. So thank you. Morgan, thank you so much. Many thanks to Greg McEwen for joining us on today's episode. And thank you for listening. To learn more about Greg, visit gregmcewen.com. And if you've enjoyed this episode of All In and want to keep the good times rolling, please leave us a review or rating on iTunes. And don't forget to share this podcast with your friends. We'll see you next week. Thanks so much.